A Unitarian Universalist minister named Johanna Nichols has a spiritual practice that she shared in a book called Everyday Spiritual Practice. She keeps an altar. She writes, I have always been a collector of sacred objects. For many years, my rocks and feathers and cherished photos sat in various corners of homes I've lived in, on my dresser, on a mantle, a bookshelf, and windowsills. These objects, as she says, are more than mementos, more than pretty things. They are sacred. When we allow ordinary things to speak to us, they speak in symbols. So Reverend Nichols writes, when I moved from my home in Vermont to California to go to seminary, two white-veined black rocks common to Lake Champlain traveled with me. There I placed them on my windowsill facing the San Francisco Bay. A friend from home, had, uh, friend from home came to visit. After she left, I discovered that she had rearranged the rocks, placing the smaller of the two on the bigger one. They now looked like a seal perched on a rock. Suddenly, my whole perspective of leaving home changed. If my Vermont rocks could adapt to California, so could I. Today, these two sacred black rocks sit upon my home altar also on her home altar. A candle representing, in her words, the center, the transcendent and imminent, great spirit and mother earth, the goddess. She has their red New Mexico dirt in a clay pot from a time that she spent there reflecting on how this desert earth was once the floor of an ocean, she said, mindful of the ancient feet that had once trod this way. In New Mexico, she observed, there is no mercy to the geography. To survive in the desert, you must pay attention. On her altar is a fossilized sand dollar, such as one that Bruce shared in that beautiful video. A river rock in water in a small ceramic bowl made by her daughter. Those black Vermont rocks, of course. And above the altar hang photographs and paintings of special places and handmade symbols of her spiritual journey. Below it, she keeps her journal for the time that she spends by her altar in contemplation. As I continue on my spiritual journey, Reverend Nichols writes, I add new objects that are sacred to me and give away others. I tend my altar. So I want to ask you in different words, the same thing that I asked Jane, what would go onto your altar? What do you want your soul to remember? And what are some things that would be good reminders or are already good reminders? <clears throat> Explanations may go crashing and shouting through the woods, but symbols sit quietly. Our souls respond to them. They're drawn to them. Several months ago, I was reflecting on an upcoming anniversary, April 30th, which will be the 20th anniversary of my ordination to the ministry. I wanted to mark it in some special way, and I decided that I would find an artist who works in fabric and commission a stole to add to my small and precious collection. 
Now there are lots of fabric artists who specifically make stoles and other vestment, vestments for clergy, but I looked more broadly and the search took me to the website of Diane Savona, whose work was not only visually stunning and beautifully crafted, but engaged a lot of issues that are important to me. You know how sometimes you, you read a book or you see a piece of art or you hear a piece of music or see a dance and suddenly you, you feel like even though you don't know the person who created those things, you've met a kindred spirit. That's how I felt. When I got up the courage to write to her and propose a commission, she accepted right away. As you can see, here's the stall and I'll give you a closer up view as we go on. She began what turned out to be a very fulfilling collaboration with a simple question. Amy, what sort of images mean the most to you? Wow, what a great question, which is why I asked you the same thing. Here we all are on our own, cut off from so many of the cultural repositories of symbols like museums and monuments, concert halls, libraries, and of course, places of worship. Yet, we have ourselves. We have the things we wear, the things we carry. We might have pictures taped to the walls and little items kept on shelves. Like Jane, you probably have some things around you that are symbolic of something really important to you. They speak the language of the soul. Here. I'll add my examples to hers by telling you what I told Diane Savona. The first image I told her about was spirals. And um, these are essentially my personal yin yang. And you can see how she worked one into the overall pattern here. I say they're like yin yang because they're a reminder of balance for me. Um, I know I've preached about this before, the way that spirals combine two kinds of motion. They have a forward motion in the way they move outward, <clears throat> or in the case of a DNA kind of helix, they move onward. And they also have a cyclical, repetitive motion in the way they circle around. In a spiral, one comes around again and again to the same place, but not quite the same place. Something has changed. And I think that's how life is. I try to communicate that kind of balance here at church by affirming the importance of both stillness and progress, tradition and change, being and becoming. I told her how important um, symbols of de decay and erosion were to me, how I, I noticed them in nature. I find erosion very beautiful for the way it reveals time and history. And <clears throat> she's done that here with, um, she's, she found this sort of um, background of, of the way uh, sand is shaped by water as water runs over it. And lots of background images of, of um, brick and stone walls and the way the stones are worn away by time and water and wind and people's hands even. <clears throat> There's a tension between this beauty that I see here and the way our culture values, I would say overvalues youth and novelty, anything that's new. A big part of my ministry 
is helping people to perceive the beauty in the ordinary or the despised. So I thought, well, that's something that should go on my stole. And <clears throat> I told her that seeds and stones are very meaningful to me. I'm moved by how closely many seeds resemble stones. I find it intriguing. There's really so little difference between them as you look at the outside, and yet there's all the difference in the world. And then there's the way that seeds have to split open, essentially die in one form in order to become more than a stone and actually grow. So she found so many seeds and she shared just dozens and dozens of kinds of seeds with me. And sometimes we included the seeds because they have some other layer of meaning. Like um, this one she found that was just perfect for this window in a wall um, is a poppy seed. It's not actually a California poppy, um, but still it's another kind of poppy. And I said, oh, well, I'm a California girl. So we need to share that. And here's a seed that she embroidered beautifully, goes on the back. Just looks like it's in the act of bursting open. And lots of seeds here that are sprouting. And then some that, that look more like um, they're still kind of in their stone phase. These, these look like little stones, really. But they're another kind of seed. I don't know quite what uh, all about what is so meaningful to me about this image of the seed especially the seed in the act of sprouting, but it just keeps popping up in my own artwork, even when I'm thinking, maybe that's kind of a cliche. I'm not done with it. It's not done with me. There's something there about the way that life and death are intertwined that keeps troubling me and inspiring me, especially as I get older and I try to come to terms with the reality that I'm going to die one day. Also a dear and early memory of mine is planting the family garden with my dad and I always got to plant the beans, um, which are great for kids to plant because they're satisfyingly fast and visible in their process. And um, once the shoots come up, you can often see the remnants of the seeds still stuck to the first shoot as it emerges from the crack in the ground. I feel like she's, um, Diane captured that here. So like Jane, having, having my family um, and my early memories um, in this stole is important to me. And then the last image I told her about was the burning bush. Now, the burning bush is, of course, an image from my cradle religion of Judaism. Um, but here's something that didn't even occur to me until I started writing about it for Diane. It was actually the logo of, I think, conservative Judaism or some um, institution of conservative Judaism as I was growing up. I had a poster um, that had this burning bush symbol on it in my room when I was a kid. Um, it, was, it was that logo with the accompanying phrase in Hebrew and English, and the bush was not consumed. And it became an important image for me some years ago as I was grappling with this question, how to stay present to people at the most painful, intense moments of their lives and not get so overwhelmed by the pain and loss of the moment that I just shrivel up and float away on the breeze. This is of course a challenge that doesn't only face people in helping professions. But all of us, as we try to be good friends, um, engaged citizens in a world that is such a mess sometimes, um, as we try to be self-aware people, because sometimes just being aware of our own feelings 
can bring us face to face with things that just seem to threaten to destroy us. So she, um, she found an image, surrounded it with her embroidery of, um, that makes it look like it's a flame. And yet clearly it's green and growing. As we try to show up for those that we care about when they're going through trials of fire, um, I've wondered how do we do it? And the best that I have come up with then or since is that it's right there in the burning bush. It's in the places of pain and risk that we find the strength and solace to withstand the brokenness of the world and even be transformed for the better by it. We are all of us burning bushes, aflame and not consumed. So that's here too. Now I'm putting all of this into words because words are mostly how I operate, but as Diane said, she thinks in symbols, visual symbols, and as we rode and talked to each other and she researched hundreds of images and shared them and shaped them, she added so much. I had mentioned that we lived in Oaxaca and um, gave the, the eroding stone and brick walls of Oaxaca as one of the examples of erosion that I loved. So Mexico is in here now. And uh, my wife and daughter, if you look closely, uh, she suggested I sent pictures of them and she worked them in um, in a very beautiful way. There's the subtle suggestion of a rainbow and really subtle suggestion of bees and a water lily leaf. This is what they look like underneath. Ah, uh, there we go. Beautiful, um, which she has um, emphasized with her sewing, her embroidery. I didn't even get around to the fact that um, telling her that Buddhism was important to me, but here's the lotus leaf. And then roots finding their way through brick and stonework to the sources of life. Come back next week for a lot more about those. So as Jane um, pointed, um, pointed me to the definition of symbol and sacrament being very similar, the definition of a symbol uh, is a visible sign of something invisible, a visible sign of something invisible. Now, it could be um, a different kind of sign than a visual one. It could be a word, it could be a tune, it could be a smell. What is that funny tasting salad in Jane's family cookbook? It's not just something to eat. In fact, now it's seldom something to eat at all, which sounds like a good idea to me because nobody makes it anymore. It's something else. I won't try to reduce it to words. Symbols can be described, but they can't be summed up. They are bigger than the words that try to explain them. And Jane, with her just very gentle poetic words, found just the way to evoke for us what that cookbook means. So if you go around your house or look in your bag, wherever you accumulate little things, you might find things that are symbolic. And if you're not sure, you'll, you'll probably know which ones are symbols because they evoke a story. If you tried to explain to somebody else why you have them, you would hear yourself saying things like, I kept this shell because, and then you would talk about some significant moment. Or this picture is important to my family and, and because of the time we did this. And then you know, these are the visible signs of something invisible and very important to you. 
There's a great designer named William Morris who once advised us, have nothing in your home that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. At the risk of irritating people like Marie Kondo, I want to add one other possibility. You might have things in your home that you feel to be full of meaning. Symbols are things that are not necessarily important in themselves, but that remind us of what is important to us. Like Jane's marriage and her engineering and her family and the way they nourish each other. So the things that you see around you on your walls or in your pockets, dangling from your ears or tucked into drawers that are neither useful nor necessarily beautiful, maybe there's something else. Maybe they speak the language of the soul. They whisper, they murmur, remember this. Or maybe it's time that's sacred. Altars are, are, are spatial symbols, but time and the way we use it can also be full of symbols. Many people say special words when they sit down to dinner or tuck their children into bed. They mark those times as soul time, a moment to give thanks or to name something they've learned or to ask a question or to share what happened to them or how they're feeling. Maybe your family has a song that you could share at dinner or at bedtime or a prayer or a joke, something probably that's arisen spontaneously out of your life together. Symbols don't usually get planned. If it hasn't arisen spontaneously yet or you don't think it has, just listen. It will. You can't go crashing through the woods looking for it, but if you listen and watch, it will emerge, it will find you. So here's a really funny story about how something found me through Diane, through the conversation with Diane and let me know that it should arrive here on my stole in a, to remind me of some very important things. Um, as I said, I talked to her about walls and the walls of Oaxaca. And so when she was looking for images, one of the things that she, she looked for online was uh, Oaxaca walls. And then when she shared the images with me, one of the walls she shared, I recognized, I knew it really well. Um, and I recognized it because it has a piece of graffiti on it. It's uh, the wall of a church and um, I'm sorry to say, somebody graffitied the church with, in Spanish, the very famous sentence from Marx, from Karl Marx, um, religion is the opiate of the people. Religion puts people to sleep, kills their pain instead of waking them up. So um, <clears throat> I knew about this because it, it was there when we were in Oaxaca and Joy went by it. We rode by it all the time on the bus, but the first time that Joy ever went by it, that's when she called our attention to it. And she snapped a picture of the graffiti um, because it's really funny. It says in Spanish, uh, la religión es el opio del pueblo, as I said, the opiate of the people. But the way it's scrawled, at first glance, Joy said she thought maybe it said el apio del pueblo, which means religion is the celery of the people. Not, I think, what the graffiti artist was trying to convey. So, of course, it became a family joke, the celery of the people. And um, so when I saw that she'd found this wall, I said, that wall has to be on it. It's here without the graffiti, um, but I know the wall. 
Um, the way she manipulated the images, it's, it, the blue of it came across quite strongly. It's kind of grayish, grayish stone wall, and it's the background of this back here. Um, so now I have something at my back. I have this reminder that in my work in a religious community, my job is not to put people to sleep, but to help, to help them be awake. And I also have a joke back here, um, a moment of fun and something that's made me and my family laugh because I need laughter, a lot of it, every day. So maybe after the service and the budget town hall, you'll want to go looking around for what are the symbols in your house. Maybe you'll even put together an altar or just notice how maybe the walls of your house are already an altar. Maybe the dinner table is. Maybe next Sunday, you'll want to light a chalice of your own at the same moment that I light this one and blow it out when I blow out this candle, just as we've brought church to all of our homes for this time of quarantine. What will you choose to be the container? Where will you keep it? When will you light it aside from our services? The symbol will let you know. Symbols, <clears throat> I was saying in the first service, are full of magic. I picked a background that I've had to um, do away with during the second service because I think having too much um, visual input from my screen was causing um, audio problems and I wanted you to be able to hear what I was saying. So you'll have to just close your eyes and imagine that when you open them, I am sitting in front of Hogwarts Castle. Yeah, that's what I was doing. I thought Hogwarts would be a great image um, for the end of this service because here I am at home and in my home, the wizarding world is a symbol that crops up over and over. It means a lot of things. You've heard about some of them in several sermons or you can catch up with them on our website if you haven't heard them. Most of all, it reminds me that this world is full of magic. And earlier in the service, I had a backdrop, as I see some other people do, of, uh, of our main hall, of the branch and the banners that, that hang and are so beautiful there. Because although we're not in our building, we know it isn't just a building. It's memory, it's music, it's the feelings that have split us open like a sprout splitting a seed. It's the ideas that have word in our minds in a service or a conversation or a class and spun our lives at speed in a new direction. It's layers of meanings that like the layers of rock over geological ages get squeezed and folded and overlap and make new meanings. Just like Hogwarts, it's kind of magical. I think symbols are magical. They, they're like a whispered spell. They're the twitch of a wand. They make things appear out of nowhere. They might be as ordinary as a gum wrapper, but mean the secret of how to make love last. Because as they talk to us and we talk to them, their deep meanings come out. They make the invisible visible. We know that the sacred is everywhere. It speaks to us in the language our souls know. 
wherever you have to be during this time, listen for the words that are not words. Choose the songs, the objects, the photos that honor your soul and tend your altar. 